Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, week 10, our final week in the book of Hosea. I've been hearing some mixed reviews amongst the people as opposed to, uh, I really have enjoyed this sermon series. I've learned a lot, a lot of history, a lot of really great stuff, and some other people that don't really want to address me, uh, looking at my eyes, just kind of look the other way. So we, we, will, we will be okay with that. I will have you know that in the fall, it looks as though we are going to be turning a corner and spending a lot of time with Jesus in another one of the Gospels that will be named at some other point. It will not be Mark. We've already spent close to 60 weeks in Mark, but we're going to be turning the corner there. So this is the book of Hosea. We are going to be ending our sermon series on this, and I do hope that some of the things that have been said and the things that will be said tonight can be applicable to you wherever you are in your faith journey and wherever you are processing um, your relationship with Jesus. This is the book of Hosea beginning uh, in chapter 14 in our English Bibles. This is verse 1. In the Hebrew Bible, this is verse 2. But we're going to read this last prophetic oracle from Hosea. And then there's an, uh, an editorial tack on at the end in verse 9. This is Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your wickedness. Prepare to speak and return to the Lord. Say to the Lord, forgive all wickedness and receive the good. Instead of bulls, let us offer what we can say. Assyria won't save us. We won't ride upon horses. We will no longer say our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds compassion. I will heal their faithlessness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will cast out his roots like the forests of Lebanon. His branches will spread out. His beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like that of Lebanon. They will again live beneath my shadow. They will flourish like a garden. They will blossom like the vine. Their fragrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what do idols have to do with me? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit comes from me. Whoever is wise understands these things. Whoever observes carefully knows them. Truly the Lord's ways are right and the righteous will walk in them, but evildoers will stumble in them. The word of God for the people of God. 
So Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says this about the passage that we have just looked at. She says, we can reasonably consider this oracle to be the last message delivered by Hosea in his prophetic career and therefore to be properly placed by the redactor at the end of the Hoseanic collection. That's a fun little phrase to say. Basically what has happened here is Hosea has been preaching to this people that have been facing and looking towards their own destruction and exile. And Hosea has been attempting to shake them out out of the doldrums of their faith to revert them to return to the Lord from whatever it is that has drawn them away idol worship following the the cultures of the time allowing other gods to infiltrate and to become objects of their worship and what Oxemeyer is saying is this oracle that we have a record of here in this text is probably the last utterance of Hosea in his ministry at least that we have in this book and it has been rightfully placed at the end it summarizes all of the things that Hosea has been about in this book now remember just just from a point of structure. In the first three chapters, we have this narrative of Hosea and his wife Gomer and all of the marital issues that they have there. We have the kids that have been born who are signs to the people of God's uh, impending judgment, but also of God's faithfulness and his love for the people. We've seen this as the background for all of the oracles that have taken place in chapters 4 through 14. Meredith in the back told me that she's missed a few weeks, and I said, hey, it's okay, because as long as you know the first three chapters, wherever you land in chapters 4 through 14, you can understand because this is just part of Hosea's preaching ministry. He's really just attempting to get into the hearts and minds of the people to allow them to see that God is still with them and desperately wants to be in relationship with them. And many of these themes come back in this set of uh, seven or eight verses. Things like God's love and God's healing and God's mercy and also God's anger at his people. We also see this theme of Israel returning to the Lord. This is, this is classic prophetic utterances here. Return to the Lord. In Hebrew, it's shuv. If you want to impress your friends, shuv Adonai. It's returning to the Lord. And this is what Hosea is telling people to do. Go back to the person that loves you. Go back to your own first love. Do not be swayed by these idols and these other gods. It also talks about Israel's iniquity and their sinfulness and the things that they have done to go away from God. And also we see at the bottom the thing that I have been talking about for weeks on end, Assyria. This world empire out on the outskirts that's looking to invade and destroy. And these are the people that had all of the military capabilities to do that. And Israel has been looking at them saying, we can't stop them. Perhaps we can just form an alliance with them. This might be the only way that we can save off our own death is to go in allegiance with these Assyrians. And these are the themes that keep coming back. And these are the themes that we see in this last prophetic utterance here in the book. And what we get is a prophetic teaching from Hosea to the people. It's almost like his last lecture. It's his last thing that he can say to the folks. It's summarized in this very first verse. Return, Israel. You can hear the pleading in his voice. Return back to the one who loves you. Israel, the, the, the way that you have gone is so incorrect. Return to the Lord your God. Some people make a real big deal about that second person possessive there. This is your God. This is not 
not just some random person out there. This is the one who has given everything for you to be in relationship with you, the one who has covenanted with you to be with you in the midst of all of your struggles and all of the difficulties and all of the stuff. This is the one that wants you to go to him in prayer and in, in this relationship in order to, to stave off this impending threat Return, Israel. You have stumbled because of your wickedness, it says. And this is what this book is all looking at, is how Israel has been going on this trajectory towards other gods and following the culture of this time and moving away from a commitment to their own God. This is the prophetic teaching that Hosea is attempting with all of his passion and all of his pathos to allow these people to see, finally... And he leads them to, after saying return, he gives them a prepared statement almost. He gives them a prepared confession that they can just kind of read along with him. Hosea is providing them with the words that are necessary for God to hear their prayer and for them to be back in relationship with his people And it made me think about, in our culture, the amounts of people that have had to make prepared statements over the last few months and even the last few years, one of which is Mario Batali. Many of you might know him from his cooking shows. He's an Italian chef. He does a lot of things. Uh, But a a number of months ago, he was accused, as many others were, with uh, sexual misconduct amongst people. Um, his improper touching of folks that he was working with. And he released a statement. I want to read it to you. It says, as many, uh, as many of you know, this week there has been some news coverage about some of my past behavior. I've made many mistakes, and I am so very sorry that I have disappointed my friends, my family, my fans, and my team. My behavior was wrong, and there are no excuses. I take full responsibility. And then he says, I will work every day to regain your trust and respect. And I don't know, in his team of wise people who had helped to prepare and craft this statement where Mario is attempting to undo all of his mistreatments or at least to address them, I don't know who coached him to end his written apology, his prepared statement, his written confession with this postscript. It says, in case you're searching for a holiday-inspired breakfast, these pizza dough cinnamon rolls are a fan favorite. Friends and family, there's been some allegations. It's not good. I'm really sorry. And side note, these cinnamon buns, woo, that's what you want. Obviously, this was not taken well in in the world of very instant and very dramatic um, responses. Twitter went abuzz in attempt to address the ridiculousness that is this prepared statement. And you can see that Hosea, in a weird tie, is trying to allow people not to make the same mistake with regard to how they are talking to God. Terence Fretheim says the prophet specifically teaches Israel what to say, perhaps under the assumption that given recent history, they need help in such formulations. Israel has not proven themselves to be able to make this statement. So Hosea is giving them the words to say. 
He goes on and says, the prophet gives Israel the words to use by which it can return to the Lord, given the depths of its sinfulness. Some texts have stated that Israel is unable or unwilling to return or will not succeed in doing so, and Hosea must help these people. So he gives them the phrases that need to be said. This happens in our own community on a week-to-week basis. Sometimes, I don't know if you guys have caught this, but in the midst of our singing, in the midst of our corporate worship, we will include something of a written, prepared confession that can help to guide you to different places that you might not go on your own. Even last week, we did a prayer exercise where I gave you some prompts and you were to think about those things because maybe in your own prayer life, you wouldn't be led there on your own. And to hear these things, it allows you to reflect on where you have been. So this written confession says things like, awesome and compassionate God. And even there, I don't know if your prayer life is stagnant, but I know that sometimes you can fall into the routine of beginning your prayers the very same way each and every time you petition God. I don't know if that's, dear God, thanks for this day. I don't know if that's, dear God, you're real cool. I don't know what it is that you say, but a lot of times it's the same kind of stuff. I doubt that many of us open up our prayers with awesome and compassionate God or some kind of attribute that we lay upon God to determine or to identify who he is. He goes on, you have loved us with unfailing self-giving mercy, but we have not loved you. You constantly call us, but we do not listen. You ask us to love, but we walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. When we hear these words that we might not say or the things that we might not confess about ourselves, we are forced to think through if they are true about where we are. Is it true as you sit here right now that as God has loved us with this unfailing self-giving mercy that we have not loved him in return? Is it true that while God is constantly calling us that we don't listen either because our schedules don't allow or because we put our hands in our ears? Abe is at this place where any sort of noise over 15 decibels is causing him to like put his hands on his ears and say like, ah, we were at a party the other day. It was a little bit loud. So he had to go into the kitchen, hands on his ears, which reminded me of little Josh as a kid, because whenever it thunderstormed, I had this set of um, elephant earmuffs that I would put on my head and sleep in my bed with these huge elephants on my ears because I didn't like the loud noises. So if anybody is in any doubt as to whose son Abram is, he's very much my own, right down to the core of his being. But we, do we not listen To God, when he asks us to love, do we walk away from neighbors in need? Are we so wrapped up in our own concerns? It says we condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. And at least as we sit here, we might think, well, how? Great question. Spend some time reflecting on that in this written confession. This is kind of what Hosea is after. He's he's giving them the script to say and hopefully the things to think about themselves and the ways to engage God in the things that they are saying. And this is what Hosea is coaching his people to say. It says, forgive all wickedness and receive the good. Instead of bulls, instead of sacrifice, instead of going through this cultic ritual, let us offer what we can say. In Hebrew it says, the fruits of our lips is what we have. Forget sacrifice for a moment because all throughout Hosea it says sacrifice isn't the thing. It's a life well lived. It's the words of our heart. It's it's the things that, that show how consistently we are living out our confessions to God. 
And then he goes on to, to mention the things that specifically Israel is dealing with. But I want to go back to that first phrase here because I find so much meaning in this. And this is something that I have been uh, enraptured by over the past three to five years because in the Hebrew, it does not say forgive wickedness. This is a translation into the English, which is something that we are struggling to, uh, to, to bring out the, the significance of it. But literally, it says, carry all iniquity or carry all wickedness. The, the noun's not really important here. Carry these things. And in the ancient mindset, what they thought God was doing is because the relationship was two-sided and because when there's an infraction on our side, the things that we do that put the onus on God, whether to stay in relationship or not stay into relationship, it's almost as if the bad decisions that we have made, we are pleading for God to carry those things for us and for the sake of this relationship. It's not just wave a wand and forget it, but here in the Hebrew, what's happening is God is taking all of our wrongdoing, taking our sin, taking our iniquity, taking our transgressions, taking, for Hosea's audience, our idolatry, our greed, our selfishness, and he is carrying it so that our relationship will not be fractured. He is attempting to take on all of the things that need to be taken care of and saying in the midst of that, I will carry this because I so care for you that I do not want this to become the thing that separates us. Hosea says, tell God, forgive all wickedness, carry it. God, the things that I have done, the things that I will do, the things that I am at the very core of my being that put me at dis-ease with you, Hold on to them. Take the weight off of me and put it upon yourself. It's beautiful language in this prophetic text here. Forgive all wickedness. God, we're asking you to carry it and then receive whatever good that it is we have in us. The things that we have done wrong, the ways that we have gone after idols, the ways that we have attempted to uh, please ourselves, perhaps whatever is good, receive the ways that we are turning from that and hear the things that we are saying. And they go into this confession. Assyria will not save us. This is, the, this is the thing that they have been struggling with this entire book because they can't see any way out. So they want to entice Assyria to be okay with them. And here they're making the claim, Assyria will not save us. We won't ride upon horses. And this isn't just bash, bashing the equestrian team here. This is like a military term saying, it's not about us and our military prowess. We have nothing to offer. We cannot save ourselves. We will no longer say our God to the work of our hands, to the idols that we have made out of bronze and out of iron and out of wood. We will no longer form and fashion them, put them on, on the mantle and then say our God. We will not do that anymore. And then they go on to say, in you, the orphan finds compassion. In Hosea chapter 11, it talks about God as the parent and Israel as the kid and all of the things that they have done have brought some form of separation. And now they feel as though they are the orphaned kid. And in this confession, they say, in you, the orphan finds mercy, finds compassion. This apology, this confession is way better than Mario Batali's. 
This is not, uh, and there's no sort of words that have been minced here. These are, these are uh, the, the claims of these people, but what you see in the text, it does not say that they actually utter this statement. This is what the prophet is saying. Return, repent, turn away from the things that you're doing. You should say this. This is going to be really good. You should say this. We don't know if they do. We just get the bare bones of what should be done. We get a specific prepared confession that outlines the sins of the people, specifically their political alliances, specifically their self-reliance, specifically their idolatry. I had a slide in here at, at one point where we just paused for a moment because there's a beauty in this passage because it names the things that are holding these people back with specificity. And I don't know how often in this space, and I don't know how often in the spaces of your minds and hearts you sit in reflection and name the things that are holding you back from following Jesus with everything that you have. The pride and the desires of our hearts, the things that we focus all of our energy on, the things that move us away from following Jesus with everything that we have. We know the verses that talk about loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But when we look at our lives, and perhaps I'm only preaching to myself, does it add up where you can see that sort of confession and commitment lived out in the lives that we live? Or is there a moment where we should have a specific, not prepared, but a specific confession to talk about the things that are holding us back, the things that we must submit and hand over to God to carry for us for the sake of our relationship? says the text, uh, this is another scholar saying, the text does not inform readers whether the people actually follow through on this invitation to return or use these words, yet they could be confident that God would follow through on these new dimensions for their lives. A good, straightforward reading of this passage is Hosea says, here, you guys need to say these things, and then there's silence. And in the midst of that silence, the first voice to be heard is God's. And he steps in to say, I will heal the people's faithlessness. You could also translate that as, I will heal their turning. The way that they have turned their back on me and moved in this direction. You could also translate that, I will heal their apostasy. Fancy word here for ditching the commitments that they have to God and to go in a different direction. But God not knowing, stay with me here, God not knowing whether or not these people have uttered this phrase saying in spite of it, I don't care. I will heal their faithlessness, I will heal their apostasy. I will carry whatever they give to me because I so radically want this relationship, this covenant to continue. I will love them freely. This section of uh, Hebrew text here, it has almost this love poetry sort of feel. I will heal their faithlessness. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Not only is he healing uh, Israel's turning, but he too is turning from his anger into something different. He is turning from anger perhaps to love. I will be like the dew to Israel. That sounds really hokey to a 21st century American that has a sprinkler system, right? 
But in the ancient Near East, the dew allowed things to grow, allowed vegetation to take root. It allowed people to live. And what God is saying here is, I will be their sustenance. I will sustain them. Israel will blossom like the lily. Israel will cast, or God will cast out his roots like the forest of Lebanon. These, these trees that have massive root systems that have always been a picture of uh, persistence and longevity. God will be that for his people. Another scholar says, Hosea does not compose the prayer that he did a few, chap- a few verses ago for his people because he thinks they are capable of such repentance. She looks at this passage to say that uh, it's not as though Hosea believes that these people are are able to make this statement. Rather, Hosea envisions Israel uttering such a prayer because he believes God will heal and recreate them. And that is the central announcement of this passage. Remember that silence between this is what you should say and then God stepping in to say, I will heal them, not knowing that the, the in-between and what scholars are saying is we're seeing that the, the prophet is not giving them these words to say as if they could, but rather he's envisioning the things that are being said as a response to God's goodness in spite of the stated confession. And what we see in Hosea in the midst of the impending destruction, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the suffering, is a God who will not and has not and could not let go. In the midst of Assyria out on the periphery ready to pounce, God is saying, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And when you are able, when you see my faithfulness, this response that Hosea is giving you, you will say. It's an unconditional and transformational love that God is offering his people in this passage. And it is pregnant with meaning for us. The text ends with this uh, conclusion, this kind of editorial note. It says, whoever is wise understands these things. This is like the editor saying all of the stuff that we've looked at in Hosea and hopefully all of the stuff that has been preached and taught and spoken about Hosea, we can still say the same thing. Whoever is wise understands these things. Whoever observes carefully knows them. Truly the Lord's ways are right and the righteous will walk in them. This is what is to be said about this Book, regardless of whether or not you know Tiglath Pileser III, whether or not you know the historical background of the Assyrian Empire, the truth and the radicalness of God's love for his people is something that should motivate us and move us and guide us each and every day of our faith journey with Jesus so we can turn the corner after hearing these sorts of uh, words from this passage and begin to pause and say, what about us? These aren't just words on a page that have no sort of relevance for us. Whoever is wise continues to hear these words about a God who is present and a God who will not let go and a God who will carry whatever it is that we give him to carry because of the depths of love that he has for us. What about us? In this passage, we also see that that Israel has been led away by their iniquity. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, we can pause and ask ourselves, what about our iniquity? 
What about the things that we have done or are doing? And here I'm not talking so much about the actions and the, uh, the, the things that, that we do so much as the mindset that we have, the things that we are going after. We might be in a season of life where we are driven by success, where we are driven by financial gain, where we are driven by status, where we are driven by being the best parent that we can be, where we are driven by fill in the blank with whatever it is that takes us potentially away from following Jesus as our first duty. And some of these things that we can fill in the blanks with, they're good things. I want desperately to be the best dad that I can be. I think about all the ways I could potentially screw up my kids maybe on a daily basis. But I know that sometimes that fear and that concern and that anxiety and even that celebration when the moments happen, when you have that heart to heart with your kid and you think to yourself, parents, you know what I'm talking about. Just for two seconds, you think to yourself, I'm good at this. I know what I'm doing. And then something crazy will happen, and then that thought goes immediately out of your head very quickly. But those moments where it's, it's, about, it's about me, it's about my success, and, and it has nothing to do, and there's no connection to Jesus, it might very well be that the, the iniquity in my own heart is driven in a, in a specific direction and trajectory that has no connection with my relationship to Jesus, and it might be true for you as well, what about our adoption where, where these people are saying, we used to be sons and now we are orphans, but even then we still receive mercy. I think that there's people in the room perhaps where you question your relationship to Jesus. You question whether or not you're in the family. You question, maybe perhaps because of your iniquity, you question if God could even love you and you forget and you forsake that line. Even the orphans receive compassion and mercy at the hands of an ever-loving father and mother. We forget that and we forsake that and we live a life of anxiety and fear that perhaps we're not good enough, we're not worth enough, we are not part of the family. And those are certainly things that can put us into a different trajectory where our actions and our words and our deeds are about earning something that cannot be earned. What about our healing? What about uh, our lives that are reconstituted and restored by the love that Jesus has for us? What about our unconditional love that has been bestowed upon us? You can look back to the Old Testament, and I'll conclude with this. You can look back to the Old Testament, you can hear all these resonances in the Hebrew, and we can all nerd out and say, in the Hebrew, it's not about forgiving, it's about carrying, and it's about us laying on everything that we have in order for God to take that and to, uh, to allow this relationship to keep going on. But the most powerful image that we have of that, of that forgiveness, of that carrying, is when Jesus Christ walks to the cross and takes the nails and dies a death, according to the scriptures, it says, for the sins of the world. And it's in that moment that Jesus becomes the embodiment of God, carrying our wrongdoing and our iniquity. And it's in that moment where he is uttering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also understanding that in that moment, these people have no idea what they're doing. And he will carry whatever they give them to the point of death, because nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Is that image, is that moment something that grips us and allows us to live in light 
of the unconditional love and goodness of King Jesus, or do we still shirk back and live in our anxiety and fear and turn away and go after the same things that Old Testament Israel was going out with different names? It might not be an idol on the shelf that we've crafted, but it might be an idol of our heart, our pride, our status, the lusts and desires of our flesh, whatever that means, fill in the blanks there. And do we forsake the goodness of a God who way back in Hosea would not let his people go and he is still not letting his people go today? Do you feel that grip? Do you feel that embrace? Do you feel that love and unconditional mercy and compassion? My prayer for all of us is, in the midst of our enlightened rationalism, in the midst of all of our wisdom of the world, in the midst of all of our background, Old Testament context, and mumbo jumbo, that at the end of the day, we have moments, we have slivers of experiences where we feel the goodness of God envelop us and allow us to go on in the midst of our daily struggles, in the midst of our grief and loss, in the midst of our celebrations where we are reminded that nothing can separate us. And whatever it is that we have that he can carry for us, he will gladly take, live in light of that, even if we're starting right now. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.